Okay, tonight we're going to try to cover quite a bit, uh, if we're able to. Uh, numbers 30, Numbers 31, we may even get a little bit uh, into Numbers 32. But we don't want to run so quickly that we miss the point here. And we want to try to ask ourselves, what uh, can we learn from these particular accounts? I admit freely that the outline I have on me is from Gordon Wenham's little commentary on numbers, and it does really a tremendous job in what it says. It's, it's very brief, but I do think that we probably are to see these as two sections that are somewhat parallel, and... Um, Vows. We we don't think much necessarily about vows today. Where do you see vows in Scripture? People making vows to do something. Nazarite vow. What was that? Nazarite vow. Okay, Nazarite vow in number six. We've seen it right here in this book, haven't we? And what else did we say? Jephthah makes a vow. Yes, first thing out of my house, I will sacrifice. And um, it is his daughter. And uh, that doesn't turn out well. But Genesis 28, uh, Jacob makes a vow that if you, uh, if you bless me and bring me back, I will surely give a tenth to you. And Jacob was a little reluctant in paying that vow. God has to initiate Jacob. Go back to Bethel. Keep your vow in Numbers 35 the way you said it. Maybe that's something that tells us something about us. We are reluctant sometimes to keep our vows, to keep our promises. We make a vow at a time of crisis, but after the crisis passes, we quickly forget what we vowed to God. In verse 1, Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the sons of Israel, saying, This is the word which the Lord has commanded. When a man makes a vow to the Lord, or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth and her her father hears her vow and her obligation to which she bound herself and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand and every obligation by which she has been bound, she has bound herself, shall stand. But if her father should forbid her On the day he hears of it, none of her vows or her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. The Lord will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. However, if she should marry while her vows or rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day he hears of it, then her vows shall stand and her obligations by which she bound herself shall stand. But if on the day her husband hears of it, he forbids her, then he annuls her vow which she is under and the rash statement of her lips by which she's bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. Okay. So, if a man makes a vow, 
if he makes a vow, and the word for vow, uh, this particular word for vow here, I had it 13 times in this chapter. He said, if he makes a vow or binds himself to a binding obligation. That is a different Hebrew word that is used 11 times in this chapter. And this is the interesting point. It is used only in this chapter in the Old Testament. That that phrase, binding obligation in the New American Standard, represents one Hebrew word used only in this chapter in the Old Testament. But he makes a vow, makes a binding obligation. He keeps his vow. The Bible says, in, in connection with this type of thing, that... If you vow a vow, do not defer to keep it. In Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. And the same kind of statement is in the law in Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23. So if you make a vow, if you make a binding obligation, you didn't violate it and you did what you promised to do. What if it's a woman? If it's a woman, I call her girl. I made this distinction not to try to be demeaning, but here she is living under her father. And if she makes her vow and the father hears of it and the father doesn't say anything, then she is obligated to do according to her vow. But if her father hears the vow, And he annuls it. In verse 5, the text says that her father forbids her on the day he hears of it. Then her vow doesn't stand. And the Lord will forgive her. The same kind of thing that is said about the girl in relation to her father is said about the wife in relation to her husband. Verses 6 and 7 of Numbers 30 are much like verses 3 and 4 of Numbers 30. The husband hears the vow. He doesn't say anything about it. Then she's obligated. But verse 8 of verse 30 is much like verse 5. If he hears about it and he hears about it and he forbids her, the Bible says, then the Lord will forgive her. She's not bound by her oath and the Lord will forgive her. What do you see right there? Anything that you want to ask a question about or make an observation about, Sarah? So in verse 6, it says... However, if she should marry while under her vows, which makes me think that she took a vow as a girl, her father didn't annul it, and now she's getting married, and so now there's a second chance for someone to avoid it. Mm -hmm. But then what about if a wife... Well, I guess that's that later. Never mind. Okay, but but I I think you're reading the situation correctly. I do think it seems like it's describing the same girl and her father didn't void the vow. But during this process, she marries and her husband first hears of it and says, no, you know. Um, now, I, you know, I tried to envision, you know, what, what would these vows be and what would he do 
um, to forbid her. I, let, let me let me just state one thing along this line. I had a young person come to me years ago who was, was thinking about preaching, and um, he he said he said that he was thinking about making a vow not to not to marry. And I said, I understand where you're coming from. From 1 Corinthians 7. You know, sometimes you can follow the Lord with more undistracted devotion without ever marrying. And I said, but remember what Matthew 19 said. That maybe not everyone lives best that way. And... I would suggest to you, hold on to your goal. See if you can live that way. But don't make a vow. Because if you make a vow, you're obligated to keep it. And um, that may bring to mind that some people know situations where other people have vowed similar things. And um, have, and uh, that that would be my recommendation there. Brian? So when Hannah vowed the vow to the Lord, that might be an instance where Elkanah could have said he hears it and, and voids the vow? That's a good point. Um, yes, I assume that that would have fit there. He shows, he seems to show in First Samuel chapter 1 that he is on board with that because he's trying to get her to hurry up to go down to the tabernacle to dedicate him to the Lord, and she says, "I'll wait till he's weaned." And she said, "Well, he says basically, may the Lord help you fulfill your word." So, so yes, it, it does seem that's a good illustration, and I didn't, uh, I wasn't thinking in those terms. David, you mentioned that there's a different Hebrew word for vow and binding obligation. Uh, what differences do you think there are between those two things, if any? This this word binding obligation, since it is just used here, it's kind of hard to, right. hard to state. Uh, some have taken one of these words being a vow not to do something and one of these words as a vow positively to do something. But I don't know if we really know enough about those words to say that with certainty. That's just that, but that's the possibility of the kind of distinction there may have been. Or maybe again, it is a phrase that's basically the same in order to reiterate it. I I, I don't know. I don't know. So they're not necessarily tied to some sort of a financial commitment. They do not have to be a financial commitment. That could be a way you made a vow. That was Jacob's vow, you know, in Genesis twenty-eight. But doesn't doesn't have to be, you know. We we just saw you know Samuel and and uh, Hannah, and so um, and it's interesting why this comes here. There have been so much said about sacrifice in Numbers 28 and 29. And often at the conclusion of a vow, there was a sacrifice. There was a votive offering. And votive means it's done in connection with offering a vow. And that was a different, that was a kind of peace offering. And so 
something that is the connection in this context. Well, let's read verses 9 through 16. What you're going to see is the same kind of structure you found over here, largely. The, the last case, the last scenario is going to be a little bit different. But, but in verse 9, the vow of a widow, but the vow of the widow or a divorced woman, everything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. However, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an obligation with an oath and her husband heard it but said nothing to her and did not forbid her, then all her vows shall stand and every obligation by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband indeed annuls them on the day he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning the obligations of herself shall not stand. Her husband has annulled them. The Lord will forgive her. Okay? Notice the structure, verses 10 and 11, a lot like, uh, much like the structure of verses 3 and 4, or the structure of verses 5 and 6. And then verse 12, very similar to verse 5, and in verse 8. So if the husband... If the husband, uh, in this particular case, hears the vow, he can annul it. If he doesn't, um, then the woman is bound by it. Verse 13, every vow and every binding oath to humble herself, her husband may confirm it or her husband may annul it. But if her husband indeed says nothing to her from that day to, from, from nothing to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows and all her obligations which are on her. He has confirmed them because he has he said nothing to her on the day he heard them. But if he indeed annuls them after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. Okay, let's look at verses thirteen through fifteen. Um, uh, you may have more questions on some of the other verses later. But verse 13, every vow, every binding oath to humble herself, the husband may confirm or deny. Uh, may confirm it, may annul it. I take it, that would apply to Hannah's situation. Every one he can confirm or to annul. But let's suppose he hears it and doesn't say anything. Notice that each of these contexts has described a situation that her father hears and says nothing or hears and forbids it. Apparently, he he makes that decision when he hears, gets knowledge of her vow. But let's suppose in verse 15 that he says nothing to her from day to day. He confirms her vows and her obligations which are on her. Uh, He has confirmed them because he said nothing to her the day he heard them. In a sense, saying nothing is a confirmation of the oath. Verse 14 states that plainly. The other verses may have implied that. Verse 14 comes out and says it more directly. By saying nothing, by not objecting, by not questioning, by not annulling, he is confirming the oath. Now, it says in verse 15, if he indeed annuls them, 
after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. You notice before it was said, even when she makes this vow and her father stops her, her husband stops her, she will be forgiven. Verse 5, verse 8. Verse 12, now the text says when he's heard this, he doesn't say anything from day to day. It seems to me that verses 13 through 15 are describing a scenario where the the husband didn't immediately annul the vow, but later comes back and, no, don't do that. He is the one who is guilty in this case. He bears responsibility. You see how it ends much differently than these paragraphs had. Then he shall bear her guilt. He is responsible for anything that has gone wrong in this respect. In verse 16, just a summary statement. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses as between a man and his wife between a father and his daughter while she is in her youth in her father's house. Okay, I know we didn't uh, uncover every rock there. Um, what question do you have about that? The forgiveness that's mentioned two times um, is you make a vow, they've been annulled, now you, in essence, break the vow you made, you will be forgiven. Is that the idea? It seems like it to me. Yeah. Yes. It seems like to me guilt. That, that there was still some sense that it was wrong to break that vow, mm-hmm. and but there is a promise of forgiveness if this is the circumstance. And the same thing with the forgive the, the guilt. Yes. You make a vow. Yeah. You're told. Yeah. Don't keep it. You yeah. don't keep it. Guilt goes on. Yeah. It's his fault. Yeah. Here is it. You know he is he is. Um, at fault is the implication like in the words of verse 6 that her vow before was rash it's stated there in verse 6 is it that something that you know and, and you know sometimes people are good about making vows for other people you know, maybe she made a vow my husband and I are not going to eat anything high calorie you know well and, and the husband here completely annulled it you know real quickly you know? Uh, and um, so I, I don't know it, but it may have been some kind of a rash maybe the implication of the husband stopping the vow but 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 he bears guilt there at the end Victoria um, is there ever an example of how they're punished for that because in the New Living Translation it says he will be punished for her guilt in verse 15 you're talking yeah uh, no we don't have illustrations so much in the Old Testament. A chapter that we do have that talks about vows and keeping vows, similar to this, is Leviticus 27. It talks about the same subject. We have scattered verses like this that talk about the subject, but you don't always see this examples of this happening in the Old Testament and what happened to the one who didn't keep their vow. No, you don't really see that. And you remember that Jesus said in Matthew 5, He said, uh, 
he talked about vows and oaths, and he said, just do what you promised to do. And the Jews would divide certain oaths in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, into ones that were binding, ones that were not binding. And he emphasized, just be a people who keep your word and do what you promise. It's going to take care of those circumstances. But... You know, I recognize that that's a good question because it, it, it is left open and it doesn't say that the man will bear be forgiven. It says he'll bear his guilt. You know, now that doesn't mean there's no forgiveness of this, but but it does uh, emphasize too uh, that he is responsible. By the way, just in, in connection with that question, you see how frequently it is affirmed in the Old Testament. That people were forgiven. Um, not to belabor the point, but and maybe I've said this before in this class. I know I've said it in others, but when people try to explain, you know, since we roll forward the Old Testament, just, just ask them, what does that mean? Because I've never had a person that's been able to explain that uh, to me. Um, go ahead. So does this, the ability of the father or husband to void the woman's vows, is does that like stem from the different roles that men and women have? Is it? I mean, that would be the, that's the only thing that I can think of. Yes, I, mostly makes sense. I, I do think that's an underlying principle that's built into the text that we should glean from it. That in the family, that the father has authority over the daughter and the husband has authority over the wife can that be misused and can he abuse his role yes he can abuse his role but that is the difference in the passage I think it's built upon that principle but I would also say as I tried to say briefly on Sunday night I do think that puts a responsibility on men to truly be spiritual leaders. How many families do you see? I hate to use, there are specific examples of this coming to mind, of congregations we have been The husband have been leaders in the congregation. They never would have been considered had their wives not been such spiritual people. That the husband, the, the wife was much stronger of the two. You're not even the spiritual leader of your home. You're not going to be able to be in the congregation. So just think about that. You know, Claire, did you have your hand up? I did, yes. Um, I think also, these. I think it would be easy for a lot of modern writers to look at this and say, oh, this is just an example of you know ancient discrimination against women. Um, but I think there's a lot of protection here for these women in that they didn't have control over the resources of their household, right? They didn't own anything, pretty much. And so this is a protection, I think, for them against... You know, they, they make this vow, they promise these resources or whatever, they promise a child, and then their husband or their father comes in and says, actually, 
actually, you can't do that. I'm not going to give you resources to you to fulfill this now. And it protects them from being held guilty for that. And I actually <coughs> think that's, that's really cool. Always, if we listen to God, it's in our best interest. It will keep us out of trouble. Now, I recognize, and by the way, people talk about you can't say certain things without having to clarify them to, to audiences. And, and um, do you recognize that the talk about the husband's authority or leadership in the family is something among brethren you cannot say without clarifying that? I want you to think about the implications of that. You got to say, now I'm not encouraging abuse. I'm not saying that's right. Which used to be a given. But now people will accuse you, if you don't specifically say that, of encouraging that. So it has been abused, absolutely, in some situations. But you're right. Don't women want a man who is a spiritual leader? and a protector to kind of guide them and keep them from problems and sometimes to take responsibility for things. Are there things they're going to take responsibility at times that you may think you know better than they do? Yeah, probably. But 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 at, at there are going to be a whole lot of occasions too that's going to take a load away off, off a woman's shoulders. And... Um, so when everybody fulfills their role, everyone fulfills their role, it all fits beautifully into God's purpose. So, yes. And it does take a lot of responsibility off children. If they're allowed to be children and don't have to be adults at a very young age. Sarah? So this passage does not address someone who is like me. I'm not under the authority of a husband or a father. Is there any guidance or was that sufficiently rare that it wasn't brought up? Well, I, I think those situations, those, of course those situations existed um, in the ancient Near East. There are other things like what about a young boy who takes a vow? And the father doesn't think that's wise. I would assume the same principles apply to that as apply to the girl. And I would assume, uh, Sarah, that the same principles that you're talking about would describe as would be described in verse nine when there was a widow or a, a divorced woman. Um, I think it would be the same thing. Um, there, but there is a value even like sometimes if a man was going to make a vow there might be some value in bouncing that off your wife because sometimes they may point out something that well this is something you haven't thought about that's going to be a problem with that and uh, so it's good to have somebody what I'm saying in that Sarah is I would encourage you sometimes to find someone you could trust if you were going to say something like that and make and bounce that off of somebody um, realistically before making those kind of vows. Okay, I, I always feel a little bit when I when I take a step away from script and I did in Claire's question, but I hope I answered that. Okay, anybody else have any other questions? Josh. 
to me, verse 14 really jumps out because it's the section where he hears it, but he doesn't say anything, and so that leads to the conclusion that he approves or confirms the oath, like you mentioned. Uh, my mind went in two different directions. I'm trying to think application-wise. Uh, for one, I'm, I think of um, if a person hears of a brother who's in a certain sin and you don't go address it with them, yeah. there is a certain complicity with staying silent. Yeah. And my mind, with, with that at least, goes to like Ezekiel in the Watchman in chapter mm-hmm. 3 or 33. Such new seeds of danger mm-hmm. doesn't say anything that's implicit in what is coming because they don't use I, I know what you're saying, and I thought about the same thing. There have been things that people have said before me, things that were Christians that, that, that said things. I'm thinking of particular. This is a conversation that happened years ago when I was uh, a young person in college, and someone said something that was so out of line uh, and so shocking. I didn't. I was absolutely dumbfounded did not say a word in response because I did not know what to say and I never expected to encounter that from that person and uh, and but the thing that would have been right would have been it would have been to try to go back later and to pursue that conversation I did have other spiritual conversations with the person um, and tried to help in some other ways, but I didn't readdress that subject again, and, and should have. Should have. So, I know what you're saying. Verse 14 is uh, a verse that emphasizes if we hear, if we say nothing, sometimes there is some responsibility that goes along with that. I don't want to encourage us to speak rashly in that regard where we don't know what to say and we're just kind of lashing out. But we may we may have to go back and reintroduce that subject with that person. Okay, you all are asking hard questions. Remember, remember the criteria in class for a good question is that one I know the answer to, and one one that uh, so you're you're pushing me on that. Okay, but let's go to Numbers thirty one. Numbers 31. John got to teach Numbers 25. How does Numbers 31 tie with Numbers 25? John, what did the Midianites do in Numbers 25? Well, they were they were involved with the uh, conspiracy against Israel. Okay, okay. And he committed adultery with Midianite and Moabite women. And God said, look back in Numbers 25, in verse 16, in verse 16, Numbers 25, verse 16, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Be hostile to Midian, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks. Be hostile to them 
they have been hostile to you. That's Lex Talionis. But but be hostile to them as they have been hostile to you. But God said there in 25, because they have encouraged you in this particular sin, that one day you're going to take vengeance on them. You're going to be hostile to them. And um, so, verse 2, Take vengeance for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards you will be gathered to your people, Moses is told. Now, that was stated with Aaron back in Numbers 20. Now it's stated with Moses, You'll be gathered to your people. Verse 3, Moses spoke to the people saying, Are men from among you for the war that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance? on Midian. So they are to be hostile to Midian, take vengeance on Midian, and ultimately this vengeance that they are taking is described as the Lord's vengeance. The Lord's vengeance against Midian. This is God's battle. This is not their battle. You notice in verses 4 through 6 that each of these verses say that they took 1,000 men, 1,000 men from each tribe. 1,000 men from each tribe to go and to fight the Midianites. Verse 6 says, Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the war with them, and the holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in, in his hand. I take it that the holy vessels has reference to the Ark of the Covenant. The ark which led them through the wilderness in Numbers 10, verses 33 through 36. The ark that did not go with them when they went up to fight the Canaanites in Numbers 14 and verse 44. They are taking the ark into battle. They are taking the trumpets into battle. The trumpets were mentioned back in Numbers chapter 10. Verses 1 through 10, and they sounded these before they went to battle, and it was, it was an enacted prayer calling upon the Lord to answer them, to answer them before their adversaries, and, uh, or, or to bring judgment on their adversaries. And the text tells us that In verse 7, they made war against Midian just as the Lord had commanded Moses and they killed every male. Verse 8 mentions five leaders of the Midianites who were killed along with Balaam, the son of Beor. Now, the names of these rulers here in 31.8 are also given in Joshua 13. I believe it's verse, it's either verse 21 or verse 22 that lists these men, uh, as being, as being killed. I want you to particularly catch the name of verse, verse 8 of Zer. Zer 
is one of these men. Look back into 25 verse 15. In 25 verse 15, remember there was an Israelite man and a Midianite woman killed in the act of adultery. And the woman's name was Cosby, the daughter of Zer. And so may this be, this leader be one of the men, be, be the man who was the father of the girl who committed adultery with the Israelite man right there in the midst of the camp and was killed as a result of it. But they bring back uh, all the cattle, all the flocks, all the goods, all the plunder. They burn the cities. They bring all these back. Now, in verse 13, Moses and Eliezer are angry with them because they have spared the women, uh, the women who um, have been involved with men. I want you to look at verse 16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to transgress against the command the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of Israel. Did you, did you say much, uh, John, about that when you all were talking about Balaam? I know we did a little bit in class before that. Did you all say much in Numbers 25? Uh, we touched briefly on this, but we didn't delve a lot. Okay. I, I didn't want to stomp on somebody well, else's Well, I did appreciate that. Even though, even though I had recklessly done that with yours, you were gracious. And you treated me as you wanted to be treated, not as I treated you. And you were a good example in that, John, and we appreciate that. Um, and uh, But Balaam, remember, Balaam would not, he could not get God to curse Israel. But he gets Israel to curse God. He gets Israel to curse God. And the passage tells us he was the one, this verse says he was the one counseling, counseling the people to transgress in the matter of Peor. Now, I want to read a New Testament passage to you. And it's only going to make sense if you know this verse, Numbers 31, 16. In Revelation 2, in verse 14, the church at Pergamum was told, Revelation 2.14, I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Why compare those who are trying to get God's people to commit adultery with Balaam? Well, Numbers 31 shows us the connection. He was behind all those events. He was behind those events of Numbers chapter 25. He was the one stirring up the Midianite and Moabite women to commit adultery with Israelite men. So what they do, what they do in this case, in verse 17, therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman who has intimately who's known man intimately. But in verse 18, all the girls who have not known man intimately, spare for yourselves. 
So they kill all the women who have been involved with men, for they may have also associated in this sin. The only people spared are those women who had not been with men. But look at verse 19. In 19, you shall camp outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, purify yourselves, you and your captives, on the third day and on the seventh day. What happened if anyone killed anyone in battle? If you killed them or if you touched a dead body, you were regarded as unclean. Now remember Numbers 19 verses 11 through 22 talked about the process of one who was unclean in connection with a dead body becoming clean again. They sprinkled this the ashes of the red heifer with this water, they sprinkled them upon the people on the third and seventh day, that text says. Just like is said right here. They sprinkled these people on the third and seventh day. Now, I want to tell you what I find about this pretty striking. What is striking to me is the Lord says before you be Hostile to Moab as they've been hostile to you. You take vengeance on them in verse 2. And it is the Lord's vengeance that they are taking. This is God's doing, not their doing. It's God's doing. And in verse 49 of this chapter, we find that this, this battle was so clear cut. Israel does not lose a man. And they kill all the Midianites. And yet still, to kill anyone in this battle, even when God said to do it, makes one unclean from which they needed to be purified. Even in situations here where it was necessary, even required, to take human life. Taking a human life is a profound thing. Let me use an illustration that goes back many years. And only those of you who are about my age and older will connect with this specific illustration. Though I think you will clearly understand the principle Around 1989, 1991, in that time frame, Ted Bundy's situation achieved a lot of notoriety. He had, um, he was an intelligent young man who had uh, abused and murdered several women. And he was executed in Florida. It was in January of one of those years. I think he should have been executed. He he took many people's lives. It was a serious crime. But there were people who believed that capital punishment must sometimes be done that stood outside the prison screaming, 
frying. Frying. Listen, I don't think that shows the dignity to life that we need to have. It, it, I think his life should have been taken. But it's always a profound thing to take a human life. And we want to take a life recognizing the full seriousness of what we're doing. It's not a joke. It's not a game. It's not a celebration. We do it. We do it because he had so grossly violated the seriousness of life that he'd taken 30 lives, 40 lives. But always understand, even when life is taken... It must be done with the utmost reverence to the God, the Creator, and with a seriousness of what we're doing. So that would be an observation I think we can draw from this chapter. Now you also see, did did you also see that they purify every object that they bring into the camp. If it's something that can be burnt like gold or silver or bronze, they burn it. If it's something that can only be washed with water, they wash it with water. Then what they do, beginning with verse 25, is they say the, the 12,000 men who fall get half of the spoil and all the other tribes get half of the spoil. Of the, of the half that the, 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 the fighting men got, they have to give one out of every 500 to the Lord. Of the one, the, the, of everything the tribes get, they give one out of 50 to the Lord. Now, we asked the question last time, somebody here asked the question, I cannot remember who, where did they get all those animals from? Maybe this was part of it. You see, when verses 31 through 41, the listing of the number of sheep and cattle that came as a result of this. Now, I also want you to notice that verses 30 through 41 is talking about the amount that they received from the fighting men. So what they received from the uh, the other tribes would have been ten times that amount. Isn't that correct? Am I doing my math right? Because they both received an equal part. It's ten times the amount that the other tribes would have given. So in all, you see that they that they got six hundred and seventy five sheep here. Then they get six thousand seven hundred and fifty sheep from the. Uh, from the uh, congregation. So here, this is 7,000 additional sheep right here. So this would provide plenty of the means for sacrificial animals, um, as you'll ask about in Numbers 28 and and 29. And uh, they do everything as the Lord commanded. They count up the men, as we've already stated in verse 49. Not one of the men is missing. And they take a lot of the gold shekels and put them in the house of the Lord. Um, I know very scant coverage of the end of Numbers 31. Really all of Numbers 31. What good question do you have? On that, Josh. Uh, it's not a question, but it's a comment. Uh-huh. Uh, reading this chapter, it, it almost makes it seem like the Midianites are all dead, like nobody's left. Good question. But in Judges, they're there. They're there. They come up again. Midianites seem to have been a group of people 
that that wandered from place to place and was and were composed of several other groups of people. For example, do you remember in um, the case of Joseph being sold into slavery in Genesis thirty-seven? The the term Midianite is used in parallelism with what term? Ishmaelite. That's right. Same thing you see in Judges chapter eight. Ishmaelite and Midianite. I think they eliminate all these Midianites in this group that were associated with this sin. There were other pockets of Midianites. Midian does not seem to be a nation with one particular allotment of land like Edom was, like Moab was. Midianites seem to have been uh, often nomads that were composed of various people. But I think everybody responsible in this group would have been put to death. That's a, that's a good question. I should have touched on it. Thanks for bringing it out. Anything else? If you do have a good question on Numbers 31, you can email me if we need to cover it on Sunday morning. We can. I would like to try to cover 32 and 33 at least on Sunday. But thank you uh, for bearing with us and uh, good to have you here.